Hi, I'm Pastor James, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church in Hillsborough, Oregon. Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. Our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so each weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please visit our website at www.isunrise.com, I-S-O-N-R-I-S-E.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you, grow along the journey of life with others, develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost, and then learn how to lead other people to know Jesus Christ. Now, on to our weekend message. As many of you know, uh, I was able to go with Pastor Nelson, uh, my friend David, to Cuba. And in going to Cuba, we were able to share the gospel and uh, minister to pastors. And I, I wanted to go and just have a, a, a disconnect from my normal life. And I've been reading and writing for so many years with my doctorate and so many books. And I don't enjoy reading anymore. I'm usually a, a lover of books. And I thought, I'm going to take a book that is just simply a pleasure book. And no, it's not like Calvin and Hobbes or anything like that. I wanted something that would minister to my soul. I thought about taking Hemingway, The Old Man in the Sea. That's a real good apropos book for Cuba. But instead, I picked up a book that I had uh, looked at for a long time and thought, it's time to read it. It's Henry Nouwen, The Selfless Way of Christ, Downward Mobility in this Spiritual Age. And Nouwen writes in his book about all the roads that we in our culture are accustomed to our roads that go up greater power greater responsibility greater pleasure there's something within humankind men and women that we want to achieve something higher and yet when we follow christ his road goes down it's a downward road downward to service downward to humility that's jesus himself paul says that he emptied himself and took on the very nature of a servant And God himself came down in the flesh as a servant. And so he writes in his book about that struggle that we all face. You know, we want to be more known, more well-known, more popular, things like that. But really what is the life of Christ is to be obscure, is to be insignificant, to let God work through us and to minister to people. Now, I I pulled a quote out I want to read to you. And he says, to be a Christian is to witness to this world, this word, meaning Jesus, to reveal the presence of this word within us as well as among us. There has never been a Christian witness whose influence has not been directly related to a personal and intimate experience of the Lord. So what Nowen is saying is that what you and I need to be is simply witnesses. Uh, the, the, the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to the early followers that you're going to go out into all the world. You're going to be a witness. And the word witness just simply means someone who testifies what they've seen and heard. And so what Nowen is saying that is, is simply this, is that your witness of Jesus is simply your own encounter with Jesus. And if you don't have a personal encounter with Jesus, you don't have a witness. You could be a religious person. You could be a church person, but a true witness of Christ is telling people what you've heard and seen. And he begins the book with the words from first John, the introduction to first John chapter one, verses one and two, that which was from the beginning 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and has appeared to us. What the apostle John is saying with these words, he says, we have heard him. We have seen him. We have touched him. And the word in the particular word that he uses in the Greek language is the kind of understanding of a word that was referenced to a point in time. It actually happened. It was an event. It was a moment when it happened. But the reverberations of that continue on in a person. Specifically, what he's saying is simply this. I was a witness to Jesus. I had a personal encounter with Jesus and, and I saw him with my own eyes. And if I close my eyes, I can still picture him. His picture still is embedded in my mind. It's like he's still here. I heard him with my own ears. I heard the word of life. I heard God in the flesh come down. I heard him speak. I heard him teach. I heard him love people. And if I just close out all the other sounds around me, I can still hear him talking. It's like it was yesterday. Of course, it wasn't yesterday. It was 60 years prior. That's how long after the events John writes in 1 John. And he says, I still remember touching him. I mean, I I touched God in the flesh. God who came down, his presence was among us. And I touched him. And I still remember what it feels like. See, that is a witness. And now when says that the world doesn't want a testimony about Jesus. It wants a witness of Jesus because only when we can tell people what we ourselves have seen, what we ourselves have heard, what we ourselves have touched that and only to that end, are we a true witness to Jesus? And that if each of us do not have a personal encounter with Jesus, an intimate encounter with Jesus, we have no testimony. I mean, we can talk to people about religion. We can talk about church. We can talk about obeying a list of rules. We can talk about obedience. We can talk about a system. But if we don't personally have an encounter with Jesus, we don't have a true witness. A true witness only comes because we ourselves have known him and seen him face to face. Now, I know that's mysterious and that's difficult because... That was 2000 years ago that Jesus walked the earth, right? And none of us have been, you know, in that moment. We weren't there. And so it takes a greater amount of faith. But the Bible teaches us that we can know him, that through an encounter with him, we can have a living, breathing encounter with the living, breathing Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. Come down. He is the way, the truth and the life. And when you come to know him, you know him by experience. And that is a real encounter with Jesus. Now, but there is something within us, within humankind, men and women, who we will settle for second best. We will settle for a list of rules. We will settle for uh, a box or a series of boxes to check. We will look and we'll do it. We'll, We'll flock to churches. We'll be a part of religious groups. And we will read the Bible. We will pray. We will give to tithes. We will give to offerings. We will contribute to small groups. We will show up and be counted in a church service. But if that's all we are a part of, we don't have an intimate encounter with Christ. We have religion. See, religion is our own attempt to somehow, if it's possible, impress God. 
to earn enough points with God to feel good about ourselves, to feel hopefully that God is going to feel good about us. And, and there's something built within us that naturally wants to run to religion. Religion is a killer, my friends. Religion is death. Religion is a false experience. Religion is when you and I feel self-satisfied, that we have done enough. Because the Bible says God isn't interested in religion. In fact, Jesus came to kill religion because he came as a relationship. He came as God in the flesh. He himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And as the way, the truth, and the life, that's real, that's living. Jesus comes, he lives on the earth, he, he takes up the form of this body, he becomes a servant, and he's God-man, he's God in the flesh, and he lives this life, and he's really, truly there, and the encounters in scripture are of a real person, not a phantom, not just a ghost, not just a nice story that people tell their children at night, but a true God-man experience. And he lived and he breathed and he ministered and he healed and he taught and he did all these amazing things because God showed up enough in the flesh that he revealed himself because he loves us. When you and I experience that, which hopefully is this ongoing relationship with Christ, that's when we have a witness. And the world doesn't need more religion. The, the world needs to see Jesus. And the only way the world's going to see Jesus is in our own witness. When we ourselves have heard him and we talk about what we've heard. When we ourselves have seen him and we talk about what we've seen. And when we ourselves have touched him and we talk about what we've touched and what it's like to be close to him. That is what we long for. But sadly, we, we can settle for second best. Because there is this innate desire in each of us to somehow be self-satisfied with our actions. It's, it's religion. It happens across the world. It doesn't just happen in Christianity. It happens in all kinds of belief systems. Somehow we feel that if we can just check enough boxes, we can make it. You know, the people at Jesus day and age, they had that struggle too. They still wrestled with that. The religious people wrestled with it. When you read the Bible, you read the encounters people had with Jesus. When you read where we are in the book of Matthew, which we've been going through for a long time, over a year, and we're nearing completion, you see that the religious leaders even had boxes to check. In fact, Jesus himself said this. He says, you take a person and you make him your disciple and you put such a heavy burden on the back of that disciple, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. That's not how to win friends right there. Okay. And Jesus says, all you're doing is putting burdens on people that they can't carry. And they were never designed to carry. God does not want to put a religious burden on us. He wants us to have a, a relationship, a living, breathing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so at the time of Jesus, the rules were many. In fact, if you go back in the law, the Torah, the teaching of God from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law of Moses, you discover that God gave 613 commands to the nation of Israel, to the Hebrew people. 613, that's a lot. And I know you don't have it memorized. Not, nobody does, right? I mean, you don't even, I mean, how would you, I mean, 613 for crying out loud? Why were there that many? Well, understand the context that here are these people coming out of slavery, They've been slaves in Egypt for generations, for centuries. And God needs to 
form them and mold them into a nation. So he gives them these laws. Some of them are worship laws, but some of them are just civil laws, how to construct a community, how to work together, how to have justice, how to have honor, integrity, how to be a part of a family when things go wrong. And so God gives all these laws for his people because he wants to build a nation for himself that therefore that nation would go out and be a light to everybody. Uh, but somehow the, the people, you know, they just struggled with that as we all struggle with laws. I mean, 613, how are you going to obey all of them? I mean, I, seriously, did anybody, you know, cook a goat in its mother's milk this last week? Because that's one of the laws. And if you don't believe me, read your Bibles. I mean, there are some laws in there. There are laws that there are laws upon laws. I mean, it's amazing. I, I guarantee that some of us today are actually breaking some of those laws because we've mixed our fabrics together in our materials of our clothing. And you go, what in the world does that have to do with Jesus? You know, how in the world? Well, there were rules. There were understandings of setting people apart. And so they all made sense at the time. And, and they, were, they were for good at the time. But by the time Jesus shows up, the religious leaders had done what religious people do. They had not just made those the laws. They had added extra laws. So it wasn't just enough to summarize them down the Ten Commandments. That would be easy, right? Because we can all memorize. We know the Ten Commandments, right? You know, um, cleanliness is next to godliness. That's got to be in there somewhere, right? You know, God helps those that help themselves. I know it's in there, right? Okay, well, there's some thou shalt's and thou shalt nots. We know those kind of things. But, but the religious leaders weren't content to just have the list of rules. They, and, and it started with good intent, they wanted to build a safety zone. Around the laws. They called it a fence or a hedge around the Torah, the law of God. And so they created laws to make sure you didn't break the original laws. Because if you weren't going to break their extra laws, you, you, you were safe. So the one command, don't work on the Sabbath. Don't work on the Lord's day, the Sabbath, which is Saturday. Don't work on that because God created the earth and everything we see in six days that he rested. And it's for our good. He created us to rest. That would be a good law to obey, right? And so just to do nothing on the Sabbath, they said it's not just enough to say that because we have to clearly define what the word work means. Does anybody not know what the word work means, right? If you're lying in a hammock, you're not working, okay? If you're taking a nap, you're not working, okay? Okay. Well, they said, let's define work. And so they had 39 laws that defined what work was. See, that's what religion does, my friends. It takes a simple command and says, uh, you're not smart enough to figure this out. I will tell you what that means. And here are 39 rules. And that's what they did. And by the time that Jesus shows up, the people had such a heavy burden that no one could obey it. And it was so discouraging. And so Jesus walks in. And one of the questions that Jesus is asked, which we're going to look at today is, Jesus, how do you sum it all up? Grab your Bible and turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, we're going to take a look at today, uh, almost the last encounter Jesus has with the religious people. As you're turning to Matthew 22, page 753 in your chair Bible, I'll get us up to speed. Jesus has done all the ministry. He's done all the teaching, all the healing. He's shown up to Jerusalem the very last time on Sunday, Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, before Jesus is killed and crucified, put in the grave on Friday, Jesus has encountered with the religious leaders. They're 
in Jerusalem. They're at the temple. This is the epicenter of all things religious. And so on Sunday, he comes into Jerusalem. He rides in on a donkey. Everybody waves palm branches. That's what we call Palm Sunday. And they lay down their coats and they shout out to him, Hosanna, which is Hoshana. Save us now, God. You're the Messiah. Finally, we want the king to come in and we want you to save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us, son of David. And the religious people are really upset about that. Jesus comes in and does some healing and ministry. On Monday, he comes in and he cleans the temple out because the religious leaders, the Sadducees of the leaders of that group of the temple, they had used the place for all the Gentiles to come in, you and me to worship God. And they used it for making money. So he cleans all that out. And then on Tuesday, he has encounter after encounter after encounter. That's where we've been for weeks. Now we're still stuck on Tuesday. We'll be there a couple more weeks. And Tuesday is when he answers all the religious critics. We've seen him talk to the Pharisees. We've seen him talk to the Sadducees. We've seen him talk to the Herodians. And today, one more time, there's one last question and the Pharisees come up with it. Next week, it's a great one. Jesus finally asks his own question. He gets a little space and he goes, I want to ask you a question. It's a really good one. And so, but we're not there yet. So let's stick with this week. All right. When the Pharisees, again, the Pharisees are the religious leaders. They're the leaders that are out in the countryside. They're the ones that teach and, and administer God's law out in the community known as the synagogues. Sadducees are in Jerusalem with the temple. Pharisees are scattered around the land. They're the religious teachers. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, that was last week about the resurrection and the little question about, you know, who's this gal going to be married to? It's, it's a great, it's a great story. They met together to question him again. Now, if you just stop there, you think, okay, so they've got some good, honest questions, but that's not what it is. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Now, an expert in religious law is just that. They're known in the Bible as lawyers or uh, scribes, literally. So somebody had to have the job of copying the scripture, right? There were no, no copy machines, right? Bless you, young man. There were no copy machines. And so somebody had to make more copies of scripture. For one, for preserving it from generation to generation, because that could decay, that material could decay. But also uh, for, you know, just the multiplication of the scripture to get more copies out there. So a person would be assigned this job. Their whole life was dedicated to taking the very words from this scroll and then copying it to a new scroll, letter by letter, jot by jot, tittle by tittle, basically dotting the I's, crossing the T's, guaranteeing that what was originally on this scroll is now 100% preserved on this scroll. That was a scribe. And they were called the experts in the law because if anybody knew every letter of the law, it was this guy, right? That was his day job. He copied it. And so they were the experts in religious law. They were the ones that knew everything. So one of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Now you might think, why would that trap Jesus? Well, it was a common question of the age. I mean, seriously, you've got not just 10 commandments, you've got 613 commandments. And then you had all the extra commands, all the, you know, the, the leaders of the nation added to that. Then you've got thousands of commands. And so there's no way we can memorize all of them. There's no way we can obey all of them. It's just an impossible thing for us to carry the weight of it. Could you just sum it up? And that's what they asked. By this time, they ask, what are the more important laws? They called them the heavier or weightier laws. And what are the, the less important, the ones that are lighter or not as important? In other words, 
what does it mean to major on the majors? I'm thinking like, don't kill someone. That'd be a good major, right? You know, what is it like to major on the majors? And, and let's just minor on the minors, okay? So what are the least important and what are the most important? If you could just tell us, if you could just sum it up, if you could just put it on a post-it note, Jesus, a three by five card, because I got this big, thick book and there's just no way I can obey all of them. So sum it all up for us. And Jesus, in the masterful teacher way that he always approaches questions like this, he answers by going right back to the Bible. It's like, what does the Bible say? That's the best question and answer. What does the Bible say? What does God's word say? And so Jesus opens up Deuteronomy. Now, that's his favorite quote book. I mean, he, he's got it memorized, but he quotes Deuteronomy more than anything. He quotes Genesis a lot. He quotes the Psalms. He quotes Isaiah. But Deuteronomy is the book he goes back to. It's his book. It's a good book. It's the second telling of the law. And he goes to chapter 6, verses 4 to 9, and it's called the Shema, which is the retelling of God's commands, originally given in Exodus and Leviticus. And now what God does is he says, okay, Moses, the wandering is all over the 40 years in the wilderness. Now you're going to go into the land. Let's recite the law again. And Moses starts with these words. Hear, O Israel. Or listen, Israel. Shema, O Israel. That's what it is. It's the Shema. Now, a good Jewish person would pray this in the morning. They would pray this in the afternoon. And they would pray it in the evening. It's part of the daily ritual. Everybody knew this command. Hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your foreheads as reminder. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What Moses is saying is this. God has loved you and shown his covenant love to you. Your response should be to love him back. This is not a command to go love God as the originator of love. This is a command to love God because he's loved us. Remember this. We love God because he first loved us. And our natural response, Moses is saying, to God giving us all his law, all his love, all his teaching, all his presence that we've experienced, is that we should follow and love him. We should just respond and love to him. When we do baby dedications here at Sunrise, I I share this. This is my passage. Because, you know, moms and dads will want to present their kids and say, hey, let's dedicate the baby and everything. But I come back and go, moms and dads, it's got to start in your heart. If you personally don't have an encounter with God, if you personally don't fall in love with God's heart, God's laws, God's teaching, then you have nothing to teach your children. You could take them to children's ministry. You could take them to youth group. You could take them to church. But they're going to catch what you've got. Don't just say the words, live it. And moms and dads, once it's deeply embedded in your heart, then talk about it. Don't be a hypocrite. Then share about it. Talk about it when you're on the road. Talk about it when you're hanging out at the house. Talk about it when you're going to sleep at night. And it's what's fascinating, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks, tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. The Jewish people took that literally, and they put these boxes 
uh, called phylacteries that they would wear on their, on their arms and wrap around and then on their foreheads. And they had a little scroll inside of there reminding them of this passage. It was blessed by a priest and so it was kosher. And so you'd walk around as a religious person with these. You'd have, you know, prayer shawls on with long tassels and things like that so you wouldn't forget. And then they would put them on the doorposts of their home. Right there, they would put a little mezuzah. They would have a scroll of scripture in there and then they would go in and touch that. It's a reminder that this house belongs to God. What God is saying is, I want this to be so deeply embedded in your heart that everybody sees it. When you go to work, it's there. When you go home, it's there. When people walk by your house, they see it. They know this is a house that loves God. Unfortunately, by then, they had turned it into a list of rules. And so when the religious expert comes up to Jesus and asks the question, what's the most important command? It is a trick. It's a trap. But Jesus, he's a master. And he answers this way. Look what he says. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Now, I've added in brackets and all your strength because uh, for some reason, and I've read tons of commentaries. Nobody ever mentions this. Matthew doesn't include in all your strength, but Luke and Mark include in all your strength and back in Deuteronomy. It includes that. So, so love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. I mean, there's nothing like this. This is the top one. But there is another one that's like it. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets. This is the Old Testament. This is the Bible. The Bible that they had at the time. The Bible that Jesus read is the law and the prophets. This is the Bible. They're all based on these two commandments. Everything rests on loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. That's how to sum it all up. If you were to walk away and you were to say, I wonder what God wants from me today. It's pretty simple. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, at the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus sends the disciples out. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach these disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And lo, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. That's called the Great Commission. This is called the Great Commandment. Okay? So the Great Commission is our marching orders. But the Great Commandment is how we function as a community. We are to go and do those things, and that's the Great commission but this is how we are to operate together this is this is what church should look like this is what community should look like this is what your family should look like this is what it should look like when you're at work when you're at school you should love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbors yourself this is the great commandment and i would say this a friend of mine said it years ago a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission will grow a great christian and i think it'll grow a great church if this is what we major on these are the majors. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbors yourself. That's the summation of everything that God wants for us. Now, how do you put that into practice? So for me, I, I'm, I'm somebody that needs to be able to memorize it and say it in a certain way. So I've called it passion for God, um, which is very simple. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The word love that Jesus uses there is the kind of love that is the giving, sacrificing kind of, the total kind of commitment love. There are different loves that Jesus you know, could have used or the words there in the original language. And there could be friendship love or family love or erotic love. But he talks about this agapao love, which is this idea of this giving 100%. This is everything. This is sacrificing everything to have this love. Love the Lord to God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, what do those words mean? 
They don't quite mean what we think about today when we think of those words. When we think about the heart, we either think about that organ that pumps blood, or we think about Valentine's Day, right? And we have little hearts, or maybe you have a broken heart, you know what I mean? Or you have a Cupid with an arrow through the heart. When we think about that, we think only of emotions. But the word heart is broader than that. Jesus himself said, all your words come from your heart. The abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You're thinking, I think my words come from my brain. Jesus is saying, there's this inner life, this inner passion, this inner person inside of you. This is, this is the heart. He says that if you want to know where your heart is, go find out where your treasures are. Because where your treasures are, that's where your heart's going to be. So find out what you love and what your passions are, and that's where your heart's going to be. So there's this, there definitely is an emotional component to that. The things that are the most desirous for your life. Love God with all of your heart, all of your heart's desire. Daniel prays, you know, give me an undivided heart. I want a pure heart that's devoted only to you. So that's, that's this idea of heart. Soul, soul is the immaterial part of us. We're physical creatures, but we're also spiritual creatures. Uh, soul and spirit are often used interchangeably in the scripture. The idea that there is a living, breathing soul inside of you. Remember when God creates everything? Only with humans, Adam and Eve, does it say he breathed a living soul with God's own breath, breathed life into us. And I know you love your cats and dogs, but they don't have the soul. And I don't think they're going to heaven. I know cats aren't going to heaven. Okay, that's for certain. Uh, maybe dogs have hope. I'm not sure, but not cats. And so what you have is this, you have is this real spiritual side of us. We are spiritual beings. And spiritual beings are eternal beings that God has created that will live forever somewhere. With him or without him. In a relationship with him, separated from him. Heaven or hell. That's what the Bible says very clearly. That we, even though we have a physical existence, there's more to us than that. There's a spiritual existence. And you should feed your soul good things. Your soul should worship God. Your soul should find delight in God. Then he says your mind. Again, that's an easy way to think of it. The thoughts, our our mind... Uh, but there's more than just that, you know, gray matter in our head. You know, what do we think about? What do we focus on? What do we fixate on? What are the thoughts in our mind? What do we put into our mind? What do we allow in? What do we keep out? What do we, you know, just kind of regurgitate in our mind? What do we think in our heart? As we think in our mind in that sense, that's who we are, what we focus on. And then our strength. Our strength could definitely be the physical component of our lives. Our bodies, we're to love God with all of our bodies. The Bible says we're temples. Our bodies are temples of God. But strength is more than just the physical component, although that's included. It's the idea of our pursuits, our energies. You know, you think of a young man or young woman who's starting a business and they're driving themselves and they've got the passion and pursuit. That's your strength, what you're pushing yourself toward. So the first thing Jesus says is if you want to know how to sum it all up, number one is have passion for God in all these areas. Basically the totalitary aspect, all everything without any question, without any room, without any closet in your life that's dark, without any little compartment that you keep from God, just give God everything. You should love God with all, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. There's nothing left. Give him all. You should be passionately in love with God. But the second command, which is like it, which actually flows out of it, is have compassion for others. 
Passion for God and compassion for others. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, we all care for ourselves. You know, we, we, we do self-destructive things. There's no question. My self-destructive thing is overeating, right? You know, um, it's, it's my struggle, right? And, and that's kind of how this works for me. And that's part of that struggle. We have different struggles physically, but we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We care for our own bodies. We care for ourselves. Love our neighbors that way. Care for our people around us. Think of other people as more important than yourself, Paul says in Philippians chapter two, or as Jesus says, when he was asked, well, who's my neighbor? Well, anybody you come in contact with anybody that God brings upon, upon you or across your path, that's your neighbor. Now for me, I've actually created goals. This is kind of, you know, it's not pedantic, but I think it's an important part of my life, but it's like goals that I've made. So every year I create goals and every year I have these goals and I write these goals down and I, I put them together at the end of the year and I share them with all my friends. If you want to be my friend, I'll share goals with you. All you have to do is email and I'll share them with you, but you got to pray for them. Then you got to send me your goals. Okay. All right. And then I'll pray for you. I have people that I have goals in my little Dropbox and my prayer once a week, I'll pray for your goals. My friend D he's a pastor down in Jefferson. He, he, you know, kicked this idea off years ago of sharing goals. He'll share goals with me. The guy humiliates me with his goals. He's got like 175 goals. It's unbelievable, but they're awesome and they're massive. And, and he knows he won't reach all of them, but he's got them uh, and they're great. They're inspiring. These are the things that he wants to do. And when you write these things down, they're that much more likely to actually happen. You're going to do them. And then if you review them every week even more so and so I have goals in my life I put these goals together goals about my heart what's going to be the passion of my life what, what, what's, what am I going to let into my heart who am I going to let into my heart my soul my spiritual component my worship of God my devotion to God my mind the things I read the things I watch the thing I take in my strength you know physical component things like that loving neighbors as I love myself loving other people I'm more of an introvert so I have to make goals to go out with people and have meals with people which then counteracts the whole goal about the strength and my physical body and losing weight. Somehow it all works out, I guess. You know, and so those are goals, though. These are, these are things that I set out to do. And it's not a bad thing. But the, the fact is, and you know it for yourself, you can't do all these things. Right? I mean, you really can't. I mean, you can fire on all cylinders for a while. But it doesn't work out forever, right? I mean, you know it. I know it. We don't, we don't hit the mark on these things. Good intentions... But we don't do all of them, right? I'll be the first to admit, I, I, can't, I can't achieve all these things on my own. Well, and, and that's the human condition. And yet, so why, why is Jesus saying, this is what we're supposed to do, and yet we can't do it? Well, you see, therein lies the problem. We in our own nature, in our own ability, we fall short. We all fall short of God's standard, of God's desire for us. That even on our best weeks or months or years, we might hit some of these goals. But we're not batting a thousand, my friends. And, and to sin in any area is to violate God's holiness and to sin in all of them, basically. One sin ruins everything. Now, the beauty of this is that Jesus presents this. And then here it is. Jesus lived it. There is only one person. Who loved God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength. And there's only one person who truly loved his neighbor as himself. And that guy is Jesus. And Jesus came to this earth, not just to die on the cross. That's the plan, but also to live a perfect life. 
And as he lived the perfect life, he was then able to be the perfect sacrifice for us. He himself, without any spot, without any blemish, was the perfect lamb of God. And he himself went to the cross, not for himself. He went for us. And he went to that cross and bore all of our failures, all of our sorrows, all of our sins on his own physical body. And he died for us, which then makes the relationship with God possible, not by rules and obedience to laws, but by relationship through Jesus Christ. And now when you and I enter into this relationship, this witness to Jesus, when we have seen him with our own eyes, when we have heard him with our own ears, when we have touched him with our own hands, when we have a living, breathing, ongoing encounter with Jesus, we now have the power to do whatever it means to bring honor to him. And even when we fail and we still fail and we still blow it, God now looks at us and he sees us as holy And blameless in his sight. Because he sees Jesus when he looks at us. Because we are now placed in Christ. And all of our failures, they're gone. All of our faults, they're gone. Jesus paid it all. All, all, all. And he said on the cross, it is finished. And so now you and I can come to him. Not by checking boxes. I mean, we can check boxes. There's nothing wrong with that. But checking boxes doesn't get us to Jesus. Checking boxes just gives us a list of things, right? Now, we do love him. In fact, John writes this in in his letter, 1 John 5, 2 to 3. I'll just read verse 3. He says, loving God means keeping his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. See, now that we have a relationship with God through Jesus, we have a heart that desires to keep his commands, but now they're not a list anymore. It's a friendship. It's a relationship. It's not just a box we check. It's an intimate relationship. I'll I'll close with this idea. This is how it works in, in my head. Okay. And, um, I'll just relate it to my wife, Mary Beth. I've known Mary Beth for 26 years. Isn't that amazing? Someone would know me for 26 years and still love me. There is a God, okay? Right? I've known her for 26 years. 21 of those years we've been married. If you were to look at my calendar, you would see that I have a weekly date night with my wife. It's usually on Sunday nights, sometimes on Monday nights, sometimes on Wednesday nights. But we have a scheduled date night. My wife and I have a date night. We know we're not fancy. We don't go out and do a lot of things. Sometimes we incorporate other people in that. But we have time devoted, hours devoted to ourselves. Thanks to my mom and grandma, Heather Brown. You know, they, they, you know, they watch our kids, you know. Otherwise, we'd be locking them in closets while we go away. And I still think that's against the law. Um, debatable. But the fact is, is that we're given some freedom to sit down and look at each other and talk. Um, Two to three times a year, we take a couple days away and we just go away. We just did that this week. We just went to Seaside where it snowed. (laughs) I do not know what planet I'm living on. Okay. And it it snowed. Massive flakes it snowed. Okay, that's fine. And, um, And so we just spent time together. And once a year we go away on a trip, just her and I. Now, you might ask, well, why do you do those things? Well, I do that 
And we do that because we love each other. But the thing is, is that love is the foundation which causes us to do those things. But then interestingly enough, doing those things brings us more love for each other, right? It's like this ongoing activity relationship cycle. So if you were to ask me, do you read the Bible? Yeah, I get up. Usually five every morning and I, I spend an hour reading the Bible and praying. I pray through the list of prayers that come through sunrise. I have my own list. I pray through people's goals, things like that. And I spend time praying. Well, isn't that just obedience? I go, well, yeah, it is. But his commands are not burdensome because I have a relationship with him. Now I want to obey his commands because I know in obeying his commands, I get to know who he is. And when I get to know who he is, I want to get to know him even more. So therefore I obey his commands. So it's this ongoing series of relationship. I I spend time with my wife, Mary Beth, and I fall more in love with her, which then causes me to want to spend time with Mary Beth, right? That's how I equate it. I like how the Puritans, uh, Jonathan Edwards is one of the old dead guys. Uh, He's hard to read sometimes, but he talks about it this way. He says, if you, if you boil it all down, if you boil it all down, you will do what your heart desires. We all do. At the end of the day, we do what we really want to do. That's our passion. Figure that out. And he says, what I want, and this is what I bring into this, is I want my affections to be for God. I mean, I want them to be for my family, no question. I want them to be for my church. But I want, first and foremost, my affections, my heart's desire. I want it to be for God. So therefore, that's what I have to focus on. Because whatever I spend my time and energy on, that's where my affections are, right? That, that's the, that's as easy, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer, my friends. Whatever you give, your, you give your heart to first, that's the affections of your heart. And if you want them to be for God, then, then you do that first with God. And I know there are seasons where we may not feel it. Can I, can I tell you something that just might shatter your faith? I don't always feel in love with God. I don't. Uh, yesterday we, were, had a, we had a conference at a Forest Grove campus on being stuck, stalled, or stagnant. And I was sharing that. You know, the psalmists, they talk about this a lot. Sometimes you're in the desert, you're in a drought. You're in a dry and weary land and you go, ah, I just don't feel it. Okay. But do you think for a moment, because I don't feel it, it's not true? No. If I were to go to my wife and go, hey, I don't feel like I love you today, so I don't have to. That would not be good. Right? I'd be a moron, okay? But you know what? Sometimes I'm honest with her in those moments and I go, I just don't feel it. It's okay. Because I know that there are times she doesn't feel it. But do we base all of life on our feelings? No. We continue on and we love because we know that's our heart's desire. And then that love comes back. It's not fake it till you make it kind of thing. It's we've had an encounter. I've had an encounter with my wife. And so I love her. My affections are toward her. With my sons. With my God. I I, I do the list. I have my goals. But those are only there to remind me that I've decided in advance what I'm going to put first. And I'm going to invest in that. And as I invest in that, my heart is more toward God. And I fall just deeply in love with him. Not every day. Not every, I, I'm telling you that because I just finished the book of Numbers. It's not every day, okay? It's not every day. But I continue on. 
Because even though my love, you know, sometimes is like the ocean, up and down, it's constant. Maybe there are tides, but it keeps coming back. And so when Jesus is asked the question, if you could just answer it straight, Jesus, how do you put it together? It's just have passion for God with your whole being. And love and have compassion for others. And you and I know in our own effort and energy we can't do it. But that's why we have Jesus. Because he did it perfectly. And when we come to faith in him, he does give us the ability to love God. With all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. And he gives us the ability to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. I know this. I know this is true. Because I live this. It's not about rules. It's about a relationship. And that relationship grows sweeter, grows stronger. It's strained sometimes by my own sinfulness, but it's secure because of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, I want to thank you for your words and the words that are in this text in Matthew. Because on our own effort, we can't do it. We fail. We can't love you with everything. There's just no way. We're, we're broken. We're sinful beings. We can't love others as we love ourselves. We're selfish creatures. We put ourselves first. That's our nature, God. Our nature is to run away from you and run to our own passions and pursuits. But God, because of Jesus, you've come down in the flesh. He's lived a perfect life, loved you with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved us as he loved himself by going to the cross for us. And so today we just come to Jesus and we come declaring that on our own we we can't do it, but Jesus did it for us. And now he gives us power and passion to do it. And in that way, Lord, we trust 100% in what Jesus has done. Not our own effort, not our own energy, not checking the box. That's religion. But we trust in what we've seen and heard and what we ourselves have touched and been a witness to. God, for those of us who are believers who've walked many years with you, we know, we look back. There's seasons, there's cycles, there's struggles. But God, may we continue to love you because it's not a burdensome thing to follow your commands. It's a love thing. It's a love relationship. For those, and I know it's true because of the odds are it's true, that are here today that are sticking with relationship. God, I thank you for that. There are some here that are sticking to rules. And they're sticking to rules because it's all they know. But rules do not satisfy. Rules do not bring change. Rules are just religion. God, may those people come today to see Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, who's come and done all these things in a perfect way, not just to be our example, but to be our Savior. To make it possible for us to love you in this way and to love others. Father, you say when we come to you in faith, when we believe in our heart that that you raised Jesus from the dead, when we confess with our mouth that you are Lord and Savior, we, we are saved. And we enter into this relationship. You've done all of the work. You just want a willingness on our part to say yes and to come to you and cling only to you. May that be the case for people today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.